Obadiah writes about Esau or Edom or the Edomites. And so he probably belonged to uh, the southern kingdom and was in opposition against the city of Edom. And we'll get into what exactly uh, that means here in a second. But let me give you a brief history of the city that this book is designed around, that, that is written around, the city of Edom. The Edomites traced their origin to Esau. Esau was the one who struggled with Jacob even in the womb. Remember, and Jacob grabbed his heel on the way out. Genesis chapter 25, verses 24, 25, and 30 say this, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And verse 30 says, And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. So from the very beginning, Esau and Jacob were struggling. And then later on in life, when Esau came in from a long day's work, he was hungry. And Jacob had made some, some stew, something that Esau would have loved, and so he asked for it. And we find there in that verse that his name was also called Edom. Edom means red. And you remember from, from what I just read that Esau was red. He was a hairy, red-colored, red hairy man. And um, so he is referred to as Edom. So that's why you'll find throughout this, this chapter, this book of Obadiah, this, these terms of Esau, Edom, and the Edomites, these people. They traced their origins all the way back to Esau. Now after Esau had, um, had been... Uh, he, he, he did not was not able to receive the birthright. He settled in the region south southeast of the Dead Sea, which were mostly rugged mountains. And these mountains, that area was called Edom. It was a very highly fortified area just because of the way that it was set up. Because it was up on a hill, it was uh, naturally fortified. And the struggle between Esau and Jacob did not end during their lifetime, even after they had both died, their descendants continued to bicker against each other. You remember when Israel, which is, remember, Jacob's second name, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had, had been uh, coming out of Egypt. They, they had the exodus, remember, and they come out of Egypt, and they're wandering through the wilderness, and they wanted to pass through the land of Edom, where Esau was from, where his descendants still lived. But Edom would not allow Israel to pass. Esau's descendants would not allow Jacob's descendants to pass through there. And they were willing to fight for it. If, if you're going to come through here, we find in Numbers chapter 20, verses 21, 20 and 21, then we're going to fight. We'll kill you if we have to. And Moses' response in Deuteronomy 23 was simply, you, you still need to be kind to them. You need to be kind to Edom, even though they're not being very kind to you. And so throughout Edom's history, they were in opposition toward they were in opposition to Israel. They hated the Israelites because, as you remember from from your Bible reading even this year, that that Jacob actually stole the birthright of Esau. Now he would have gotten it anyway because God tells Rebekah that that the younger one will be the master over the older. The older will serve the younger, meaning Esau will serve Jacob. So 
this whole ploy that they did at the end where Jacob where Isaac's about to die and Jacob comes in and pretends to be Esau, they, he didn't have to do that because God would have taken care of it, but but it was just simply uh, showing their lack of faith in God. point is, is that Esau did not have the birthright. Esau did not get the promise from God that, that he thought he should have gotten. And so throughout his life and the, the life of his descendants, there was this opposition. This opposition with Jacob and his descendants. And what you'll find throughout the, the history of Edom is that they, they were subdued by David and Solomon after having uh, opposed Saul and, and his armies. They fought against Jehoshaphat and successively rebelled against Jehoram. They were conquered by Judah under Amaziah, but they regained their freedom during the reign of Ahaz. And ultimately, when Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., when the Assyrians attacked and destroyed the temple, Edom rejoiced in that. They took great pleasure in the destruction of Jerusalem because they hated them. And later, Edom was controlled by Assyria and Babylon in the 5th century B.C., and eventually they were forced by the Nabataeans to leave their territory. So they were spread out, and the next we hear about them is not until the New Testament. Because what happens is now, these, even though they're not living in the land of Edom, they spread out from there, and they, they moved to southern Palestine, and they became known as the Idumeans. The Idumeans. And if you remember, Herod the Great was an Idumean. Herod the Great was the, the king at the time of Jesus' birth. And we find even at Jesus' birth, Jesus, an Israelite, uh, in a sense, was being opposed by Herod the Great, who was an Idumean, or we could say an Edomite. He was a part of Esau's descendancy, and Jesus was a part of Israel's. And, and now you still have this opposition between uh, Esau and Jacob. Well, the Idumeans rebelled against Rome and were ultimately defeated in A.D. 70. And although they applauded Jerusalem's destruction in the 6th century B.C. when the temple was destroyed, they died trying to, to, to defend it in A.D. 70. And after that, they were never heard from again, just as Obadiah will prophesy here. He says that they will be cut off forever that they will no longer have an inheritance. They will be cut off to the point where they will have no descendants at all. And so God here, in the, uh, through Obadiah, raised up this prophet to pronounce judgment against Edom because of their hostility towards God's people. Because they had opposed God's people and God's judgment ultimately came on Edom. Edom and as a result... Obadiah sees this, this judgment on Edom, as an illustration of God's future judgment on all the nations who rebel against His people. Okay, I'll show you that when we get when we get into the passage. But one of the things that we're going to learn is that God is God sovereignly judges. He brings cursing and blessing to to people all over the world. And we need to have a right response to the way that He enacts judgment. What do you think of when you think of Nazi Germany? When you found out, some of you, that Nazi Germany fell in the mid-20th century, 
when when you read about this in your history book, what what are your thoughts? Do you take a triumphant glee? Or do you have some sort of gloating mentality because hey, Nazi Germany fell. This is great. I mean, certainly we do want to see justice take place. We want to see people who are being sinful punished. But what we're going to see uh, from this, this book this evening is that the right response to judgment on other people should not be joy because they've received some sort of punishment. But rather, we should look at ourselves and say, if it were not for the grace of God, there go I. I mean, we could be in their shoes. We could be a part of Nazi Germany. We could be a part of these people who are who are enemies of God, and yet God shined His grace on us. Why? Did He look at us and say, wow, what a great person you are, or what a great person you will be? No. He saw nothing good in us. In fact, all of us were opposed to Him. We were His enemies. And yet, He brought us out of that and made us a, fa- a family member of His, a child of His. And as a result, we share in, in the joy that is, um, that is uh, ours as a result of being His children. And so when we see opponents fall, we had better recognize that God is the one who brings tep- temporal judgments, short-term judgments. And one day... Everyone will face an eternal judgment who who is not a part of God's grace. So let's uh, let's begin reading in Obadiah, and we'll go ahead and read the the entire book, and then I'll come back and and try to explain it to you and show you um, that God enacts judgment, and God has sovereign rule in judgment and in blessing. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined! Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out! All the men allied with you will all the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you they who eat your bread will set an ambush for you there is no understanding in him will i not on that day declares, declares the lord destroy wise men from edom and understanding from the mountain of esau then your mighty men will be dismayed o teman so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gate, 
and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of My people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And then those of the Negev, the south, will possess the mountains of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and possess the territory of Ephraim, and territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead, and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now what Obadiah does here in these first 14 verses is he tells about Edom's coming destruction. Now this destruction has already happened uh, from our perspective. But for them, it hadn't happened. This was a prophecy. This was something that was going to happen in the future. And once this was to come, Obadiah was saying, now I'm using this as an illustration to show all people that the day of the Lord is coming. There's a time coming, even future for us, called the day of the Lord, in which God will judge all people. But not only will He judge all people, He will bless those who follow Him. And we'll see both of those when we get to verses 15 through 21. So the first thing I want us to see is the coming judgment of Edom that the, that the Lord explains to the people of Edom through Obadiah. And that's in verses 1 through 9. The first thing that we see is the Lord's sovereign control over international affairs. Verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. The Lord is saying here that, that I am going to be an active part of your destruction, Edom, because I have control over all of your enemies. And if I want to enact judgment on you, I will be a part of that if I have to. And, and ultimately, God is because He has sovereign control over international affairs. And in verses 2-4, through four, we see the Lord's sovereign judgment over the nations. In verse 2, He says, I will make you small among the nations. Verse 4, he, after, after verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, talking about all their loftiness, being up in the skies, it's like being having an eagle's nest built up really high and you can't be brought down. Then in verse 4 at the end it says, but from there, from your lofty heights, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
God is sovereign over international affairs, but He's also sovereign in judgment over the nations. It doesn't matter how high and mighty some group of people think they are, God is higher and mightier than they. Verses 5-9, through Obadiah explains the downfall of Edom. The downfall of Edom. And in verses 5, 6, 8, and 9, we see the scope of their destruction. And he gives, uh, in verse 5, two illustrations of partial destruction. He says, If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how they will be ruined! Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? The point is, no matter how greedy a thief is, they always leave something behind, don't they? They can't ultimately take everything that you have because it could be because they don't have enough time, they don't have enough resources to be able to pull all those things out, or whatever. They just take until they, they've got the most valuable things and they leave everything else behind. He says that, that's an illustration of what thieves do, but he also goes on and gives another illustration of grape pickers. He says, if grape pickers, uh, grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Meaning, you know, they might leave a few here on the branch, on the vines there. They might drop some on the ground. Grape gatherers don't get every single grape. There's, there's always some left behind. But in contrast, he says in verse 6, you will not be like that. When I come with destruction on you, Edom, there will be nothing left behind. Look at verse 6. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. So if their destruction were compared to someone robbing a house, the second part of the verse says that even their hidden treasures would be taken. In a normal situation, thieves would come into a house, take as much as they wanted, then leave. They'd still leave something for you. But God says, when it comes to you, Esau, or Edom, city of Edom, you will be completely destroyed. The thieves, when they come in, they will take everything, even your hidden treasures. And if your destruction were compared to picking grapes, then the first part of the verse tells, tells them, oh, how Esau will be ransacked. The idea there is that it will com be completely wiped out. As if a swarm of locusts came in and completely wiped out everything. Every type of vegetation in sight, it would be completely gone. And the point is, is that there will be total destruction. We see this even more clearly in verses 8 and 9. This is, this is a direct statement of how this destruction will take place. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Verse 8, we see that, um, that their wise men will be destroyed. The wise men were these people who embodied the nation's pride. I mean, these were the best of their land. And they embodied the nation's pride. And then we see the warriors in verse 8. That the warriors will also be destroyed. Or, I'm sorry, verse 9. Your mighty men. These are the people who embodied the, the nation's self-confidence. Listen, we don't need anybody else. We can protect ourselves. Not only do we have a good location up on this mountain, but we also have a great army. A great group of mighty men. 
And God says, even those people, the wise men and the warriors, will be destroyed. I will destroy everything that you have. And He says it in verse 9, everyone, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Now, for Esau and the, the city of Edom, they, they thought that their, their location was inaccessible. That no one could get to it without being destroyed because they'd have to come up a mountain. But verse 10 says that, that they will be destroyed forever. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. So the scope of their destruction is complete. It is when when you did this evil thing to Jerusalem, to Israel, you you looted their goods, you laughed at at them when they were being destroyed. But when this happens to you, Esau or Edom, you will be completely destroyed. You see, there was still a remnant of Israel that still lived on. And although Esau or Edom was laughing at Israel and their destruction, there was still a remnant that remained. Because Christ had to come through that line, you remember. But for Esau, there will not be a remnant. There will be no one who escapes. It will be complete destruction. Now, the reason for this destruction is found in verse 7. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. All the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Edom's pride had lulled them into a position where they thought they were going to be okay. That they couldn't be deceived because they were in the perfect position militarily. But God said, no. You are actually going to be deceived by people who you think are your allies. And although you think you have impregnable natural defenses located on the rocky highlands southeast of the Dead Sea, you're set up like an eagle's nest we saw in verse 3. Part of their judgment was going to be that they would be deceived by their own friends. And all these wise men who thought they had everything under control would be completely fooled. And so verse 7 says, Despite your secure position, the proud nation of Edom would be torn down by God and His armies. God would destroy them for causing uh, such or inflicting such pain and suffering on Israel. Now, verses 10 through 14 explain more clearly for us the cause of Edom's judgment. Why was it that that God was bringing this judgment on them? And what we find is that it's because of their mistreatment of Israel. Edom mistreats Israel. Verses 11 through 14, we see this mistreatment on the day that you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat of your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork in the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. First thing that we see in verse 11 is passive hostility. The reason that God enacted judgment on them was because of their passive hostility. 
See what it says there? On the day that you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth. So other people were attacking Israel and Edom was standing back with their hands in their pockets, standing aloof. I'm not going to take part in this. I'm not going to come to Israel's aid. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it. And you see that they actually took joy in this. And that's why in verse 12, uh, God talks about their gloating. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice. And then do not boast. So do not gloat. Do not rejoice. Do not boast. They, they were taking joy in Israel's destruction. They were seeing Israel be destroyed and they were, they were taking great joy in that when they should have been asking for God's mercy in that situation and potentially helping them out. But instead, they took joy in it. So first, passive hostility. Secondly, gloating. Thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, their aggressive behavior. Their aggressive behavior is seen in two ways. First of all, by looting. Verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. So you can imagine what's going on. Israel had, had been destroyed or, or had been attacked by um, the Assyrian and Babylonian armies. And you could see this, the city just on fire and, and bodies all over the place. And what does Edom do? First, they take joy in it. They, they, they sit back and enjoy it. They take joy in it, verse 12. And then they go in at the end of verse 13 and do not loot their wealth. They say, oh, well, they're kind of vulnerable right now. We might as well go in and take as much as we can for ourselves. We'll stick it to them. See see how we've hated them over the years? Now, now we'll take some of their wealth from them. Edom treated Israel like a foreigner rather than a brother because foreigners would loot Israel of its wealth and Edom does the very same thing. And their mistreatment is not only seen in the way that they loot um, Israel's wealth, but also in the way that they treat Israel's fugitives. Look at verse 14. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. So the people, the remnant, who came from Israel who were able to escape this destruction, were coming to the fork of the road and Edom was waiting for them. And they would cut them down, meaning they would kill them. And they would take joy in it. Or, as the second part of verse 14 tells us, they would imprison their survivors. Just take them in and, and uh, show, them, show them how much they hated them. And so, God was saying through Obadiah, Edom, you will be destroyed because you have mistreated my people. You have, have uh, aggressively, passively first, and then aggressively acted toward my people. And I will not allow it. And now you will be cut off. All your future generations will be cut off. And so Obadiah sees Edom's soon judgment as a foreshadowing of God's future judgment on all nations. That's including future for us. Okay? There, there is a time coming when God will enact judgment on all the nations who reject Him. And that's what we see in verses 15 through 21. The coming day of the Lord. The coming day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is something that I've said that is still future for us. And why do I say that? Why do I say that this is a part of the end times judgment? Well, the day of the Lord is not an actual 24-hour day. 
Okay, a lot of times in Scripture when we have the word day, like when in Genesis chapter 1, it was evening and, and, and it was morning the first day. Now that was a little, literal 24-hour day. But in this case, this happens to be a period of time. And we use day in that way in our day as well. Because, just like I just used it right there. But let me, let me just give you an example. Let's say that, that we're talking to one another and we say, there will be a day when there is a woman as President of the United States. Okay. Now, do we mean that there will be a 24-hour period of time when a woman will be President of the United States and then after that 24-hour period is over, she will no longer be the President of the United States? No, what do we mean? We mean there will be a future period of time, okay, whether it be four or eight years, where there will be a woman as the President of the United States. Okay, so we're talking about a period of time. This is exactly the way the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament. It's used as a future period of time. And Obadiah is the first one to introduce this phrase, the day of the Lord. Because remember, he's writing in 835 B.C. When we looked last week at the, the overview for all the minor prophets, we saw that Obadiah was the very first prophet to write um, that he was the man that came on behalf of God. And it was 835 B.C. when he wrote. And he was the first one to introduce this phrase, the day of the Lord. Next week, we're, we're going to start into Joel. And Joel also talks about the day of the Lord, but he's a, he's a, he is a contemporary of Obadiah's, but he follows him in his, in his prophecy. So the day of the Lord is referring to a period of time following the rapture and going to the end of the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. And this day of the Lord includes both judgment and blessing. It includes both judgment and blessing. Now, if I said that, it, I just said that the day of the Lord follows the rapture and it includes both judgment and blessing, what is it that immediately follows the rapture here on earth? What is it? The tribulation. The tribulation, would we call that a time of blessing at all? Certainly not. We would call that a time of judgment. And it's a seven-year period in which God's wrath will be poured out on those people who oppose Him. And He will pour His wrath out through the Antichrist. The Antichrist will come and He will reign. And at the three and a half years, the halfway point of the tribulation, He will be at the peak of His power. And from there, millions and millions and millions of people will die to the point where you read in, in Revelation that the blood will be flowing like a river down from the mountains. There are two times in Revelation where a third of the people on the earth are killed. So it will be a time of judgment. And the day of the Lord includes both judgment and it includes blessing. So that after the tribulation, you have the battle of Armageddon where Jesus Christ comes back on the white horse with His uh, saints and we all fight this battle against Satan and his armies and, and Christ has the victory. Now, after that period of time, Satan is bound for a thousand years in which Christ will be on this earth reigning as king for 1,000 years and it will, there will never have been a time on this earth like it because He will reign justly. He will reign righteously. 
And so that is the time, the period of time in which there will be blessing, where God will pour out blessing upon His people, upon those who follow Christ. So we have the first seven years of judgment that God pours out His wrath on those who oppose Him, and then the the next 1,000 years where God pours out His blessing. That whole period of time, from the time of the rapture to the end of the millennium, is the day of the Lord. Okay, long day, isn't it? But it, it will be a great day for those who know Jesus Christ. It will be a great day for those who are a part of God's kingdom. That will be Christ reigning as King on this earth. And so we can look forward to that day with great anticipation. The day of the Lord does end, though. It ends when the heaven and earth will pass away at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. You can look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to see that clearly. So when you have this precise phrase, the day of the Lord, anywhere in the Old Testament, you're going to find that that is referring to that future period of time between Christ's rapture and, and the end of the millennium. Okay, it's, it's repeated several times, particularly in the prophets, and, and that is what it's referring to, the day of the Lord. So, now that I've explained that, let's get back into our text so that we can understand it a little better. Because what Obadiah is doing, remember, is he's showing this illustration of Edom's judgment, verses 1-14, through 14, and now I'm going to illustrate, Obadiah says, what it's going to be like in God, in, when God future in the future judges those who are opposed to Him, verses 15-21. through 21. And in verses 15 and 16, he begins with the coming judgment on Edom and all the nations. He says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as they had never existed. Verse 15 shows us the judgment of Edom, and verse 16 shows judgment on the nations that are like Edom. There's, God is saying through Obadiah, just as you drank on my holy hill, that is, just as Edom drank the, the cup of God's wrath when he poured it out on them, so, verse 16, so they, that is, all the rest of the nations who are like Edom, will also drink of God's wrath, wrath, and they will swallow and become as if they had never existed. There will come a point when God judges sin. It will not be a pretty sight. Because God is holy and God hates sin. And so He forces the nations who are opposed to Him to drink the cup of His wrath. And it ultimately results in their destruction. But... We've talked about a lot of death and carnage and judgment, but there is a good side to this oracle, to this vision that Obadiah gives to us. And that is found in verses 17 through 21, and that is the coming deliverance of Israel and God's people. The coming deliverance of Israel. While Edom had goaded over the, the exploited Israel and exploited Israel's weakness, the day of the Lord would completely transform the situation. And in verses, um, in the verses that follow, we have a future promise that Edom 
because they had cut off the fugitives of Israel, that they would ultimately be destroyed. Because they had treated the inhabitants of God's holy hill, verse 16, severely they would be destroyed. Because the city would not uh, receive deliverance, verse 17, there would be no escape. Then Israel would be the, the object of God's favor. And just as in the original conquest under Joshua, when the Lord gave the promised land as an inheritance to His people, so will Israel receive that land back as an inheritance. They will receive it back from God. In verse 18, we find their role in the whole situation. Verse 18 says, Then the house of Jacob will be fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Edom had performed these evil acts on Israel, but now the tables would be turned. Now it would be Israel performing this act of annihilation on Edom. And just as fire completely devours stubble, verse 18, so would Edom have no survivors. There would be no survivors among the house of Esau. Israel's deliverance would crescendo and come to a pinnacle at the time of the Messianic Kingdom. And we see that in verses 19-21. through 21. The Messianic Kingdom is that 1,000-year reign that I was talking about where Christ will reign on this earth. That is the pinnacle of Israel's history. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. You remember back in Genesis chapter 15 that, Lord, that the Lord had promised to Abraham that his descendants would receive and accept and uh, or, or uh, inhabit the land of Israel. He said, this land of Canaan, although it's not any part of yours right now, Abraham, your descendants will, will take possession of that. They had that possession for a short period of time. We saw in Joshua when this conquest, conquest took place. But then they lost it in Judges because they had been unfaithful to God and so God uh, poured out His judgment on them until they humbled themselves and turned back to Him. And so you have this constant thing where they're going back and forth of the land of Israel. And now you have a time when, for the most part, Israel is not occupying the entire land of Canaan, but only a portion. And there will be a day, the Lord says, when Abraham's descendants receive and occupy the entire land of Canaan, including the mountains of Edom, which are south of the Dead Sea, which... Um, we don't normally think are a part of the Jewish population at this time. And so the Lord makes a promise that in the day of the Lord, He will make good on His promise. He will destroy Edom and deliver Israel. And they will gain prominence over the entire land and incorporate even the mountains of Edom. And so what we find here is that Edom and their destruction is a picture of what God will do that He will both judge those who are opposed to Him and He will deliver 
those who are His children. And the point that I think Obadiah is making is to show that God's sovereign rule is active in judgment and in blessing. And the final sentence of the book says, and the kingdoms and the kingdom will be the Lord's. You know, our God is in control of everything. It is not that He just knows what has happened in the past, that He has this great wealth of knowledge about every single thing that happens in the past. It's not just that He knows about everything that is going on in every part of our universe, and He does, but He also has control over all those things, and He also knows everything that will happen in the future. Nothing is a surprise to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24, we read, O Lord God, You have begun to show Your servant Your greatness and Your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as Yours? The implied answer is, no one. No God can do like our God can. 1 Samuel 26.9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed? This was when David was being chased by Saul and his men were saying, Hey, this is our opportunity. We can kill him. And David said, No. God is in control. We'll let God take care of that. No one should put to set up their hand against God's anointed and be without guilt. Job 42.2 Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job, after recognizing his condition, his helplessness before a, a great and powerful God who had control over all things, all he could say was, God, I'm sorry, and I recognize that you are in control of all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's no amount of energy that we can put together as a society, as a, as a group of human, human beings that can thwart God's plan. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, even if you are the Antichrist, even He cannot thwart God's plan because God has everything under control. Isaiah 14:27. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Implied answer, no one can. God is in control of everything. Joel 2.11, we'll see in two weeks, the Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The point of me reading all these verses to you is that no one can stand up against God's sovereign power. He will accomplish what He set out to do and how terrible it will be for all of His enemies. Do you sense that in this reading this evening, in this study, that, that this will be a terrible day for all of His enemies? And it, it should grip us. It should, it should help us to recognize not only how dangerous it will be for the people around us who are unsaved, but also how great of a grace we have received from God that we are not going to be a part of that. Rather, we're going to be a part of God's people. We will be delivered from this terrible wrath until we recognize how much God hates sin. 
we will not understand as clearly how gracious He is to us. If you think about it this way, God hates sin so much that He would He would create a hell to punish people in because of their opposition to Him. And He would crush His own Son so that it could be destroyed. That is how much God hates sin. And it will be a terrible day when He finally punishes all those who are opposed to Him. And we ought to give glory to God because He has delivered us. Revelation 3.10 He has delivered us from the wrath to come. We will not have to be here during that time. Revelation 3.10 tells us that, that He will take His church up to heaven. That is the rapture before that wrath comes. And we also find out from Revelation that if it were not for the shortness of that period of time, that seven-year tribulation, no one could survive. If, if God had allowed that to extend further, no one would be able to survive. What we know from Scripture is that there will be some who survive, although it will be a graphic and terrible time for them. There will be some who enter directly into the kingdom after the seven-year reign. But if it were not for God's mercy, no one would survive because He hates sin so much. He despises it. And so when we look at the prophecy from Obadiah, we see that God brings judgment on those who oppose His people. And then we think about how this... I hope we would think how this shows up in life because you may be thinking with me about some of your enemies and maybe that neighbor who who doesn't uh, like my dog barking or the customer service guy from the mortgage company who keeps hounding me about my payment or the guy at work who gets keeps getting promoted over me or the family member who thinks I don't like them or have done something wrong to them. We may be thinking about them in this situation and go, it wouldn't be such a bad thing if God did judge them. You know, it wouldn't be so bad if if they were brought low, if, if they were humbled a little bit. I would kind of take joy in that because, I mean, they've done some things wrong against me and against my God and in a way they deserve it. Let me give you four areas of application that we can learn from Edom and God's judgment on them. Believers, number one, are to be warned against engaging in the sin that brings God's judgment. We are to be warned against engaging in the sins that bring God's judgment. Edom's pride and end should be a lesson to us today. Jesus says, all of, us, all of those who will be humbled are all those who exalt themselves, who lift themselves up, will be humbled. All those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we ought to recognize that, that we should not take joy when our enemies fall. We should not take pleasure like Edom did when Israel was falling. We should never take pleasure in the downfall of someone else or some group of people because we should do that because we are Christians and we recognize that all of the things that we have received, everything that we have from God is a gift. 
And we deserve nothing but His wrath just as they do. We deserve to be punished. And the only difference between them and us is not us, but Jesus Christ. And that's why we should take glory in Jesus Christ. Number two, believers are to be encouraged that God will punish the unrepentant and establish His kingdom because God is near to His people and He acts on behalf of them. We should be encouraged that God will punish the unrepentant and that He will establish His kingdom. That there will be a day when God's justice is vindicated. When we will recognize that what God was doing and is doing is right. And although we can't make complete sense out of it, there will be a day when all those who have been opposed to God will be punished. And we should take, uh, we should be encouraged, not take joy, but we should be encouraged that God has all of that under control and that He will bring those low who, whom He has chosen. The people who have not followed Him. Number three, believers are to prepare... Excuse me. Believers are to pray for wise leaders and labor for the advancement of the kingdom. Believers are to pray for wise leaders and labor for the advancement of the kingdom. Second Peter three eleven and twelve says, "Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming the coming of the day of God?" because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Peter's talking about this same time, this time of judgment, and he says this is how we ought to respond. We ought to be people who live lives of holy conduct and godliness. We should be people who are striving more and more to remove sin from our lives, to to press on toward more Christ-likeness so that people around us will recognize the love that we have for God and turn from their sins as a result. They will recognize that we respond differently when people are judged, even our enemies. And when they see that, God is glorified in it. Number four, sinners are to be warned that God will judge all unrepentant sinners and assign them a place of eternal punishment. Just as Edom was going to be completely destroyed, so will everyone who turns from God, who turns toward their own sin and follows that path. So, sinners are to be warned not to go down that path. And we ought to be plucking people out of the fire as quickly and as best as we can by giving them the Gospel, commanding them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. One of the things that you'll find throughout the Gospels is that Jesus often spoke of coming judgment. He did not, he did not squelch or, or minimize hell when he, in his preaching. He did not say, "No, don't worry about that. You know, we'll take care of that. God's got everything under control. He'll choose those whom He wants." No, he preached hell, and he showed people that that, that there was coming eternal punishment if they did not turn from their sins. And God uses that sort of of um, witnessing, that sort of preaching, to bring people to Him. Some of you were brought to Christ because of your fear of hell. That's not a bad thing. 
And so sinners ought to be warned and we ought to be helping them be warned. And we do that by sharing the Gospel with Him. So I want to conclude by simply saying that we serve a great God. A great and holy God. There is none like Him. And He hates sin, but He loves those who are part of Jesus Christ. Who are part of His body. And we should take great joy in the fact that God has plucked us out of the the fires of hell. That He has pulled us away from that eternal punishment that we deserved. And He's shined His grace upon us in a way that we can never repay. And so, not only for the 1,000 years when we are here on the earth with Jesus Christ, will we be able to praise God and exalt His Son, Jesus Christ, but but also for all of eternity, we will be continually amazed at what a great God we serve and what great grace we have received. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are humbled tonight as we look into Your Word. We are exactly like Edom when we look at our enemies and see their downfall, we, we gloat and take pride in their destruction. And we have to admit that at times we, we enjoy seeing our enemies fall. But if it were not for Your grace, that would be us. And so we bow our heads in shame and recognize what a holy God You are. That You desire that all people are made into the image of Christ and that all people come to repentance. We know that not all will. And that's why we're so amazed at the grace that You showed to us. We certainly don't deserve Your favor. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn it. The only way that we can stand before You righteously is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that atoned for our sins. We deserved Your wrath, but He took it upon Himself. And in Isaiah we find that You were pleased to crush Him. And You were because You loved us so much. He was willing to lay His life down. To have your back turned on Him so that we could have salvation. And we are amazed. And so we bow in honor before You and ask You to work in our lives and help us not to gloat over our enemy's destruction, but to recognize and enjoy and love Your grace and the mercies that You show to us each day. That our lives would be an alleluia to You, a praise to You that we sing. And that it would not be something that is forced or done out of duty, but that it would be our joy and delight to praise You and to offer our bodies as sacrifices to You. We can't do that apart from Your Spirit, and so we pray for His power in our lives that Your your Word would be um, clear as we, we read it each day, 
as we learn about it and that our lives would exalt our Savior whom we love and whom we owe our lives to. May we share the Gospel to everyone around us so that they are not in the position that we were once in, destined for eternal punishment. Lord, we love You and we want to serve You with all that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.